Do you see dead people? Not because you're a Bruce Willis superfan, but because visits with Gma got a little weird after her funeral. Are you often up at 3 a.m. googling the various ways in which bodies decompose? But you swear it's just harmless research. Are you the first of your friend group to go on a murder tour or rent a haunted location for the night? Then this is the podcast for you. Welcome to the Identity Podcast. Dear listeners, and welcome back to another episode of the Identity Podcast on the Podmoth Media Network. This week, we tackle the second installment of the Jack the Ripper series, delving into the list of victims and the communications that the Ripper sent to police. Upon finishing this week's script, I realized that the two-part series will actually be a three-part series. There's just no way to fit everything into part two. Therefore, I'll cover the final two canonical Ripper victims and a list of suspects next week, along with the newest information about Jack the Ripper's possible identity. If you haven't listened to part one, I'd suggest going back to listen to that episode before you tackle this one. I'd also like to take a moment to welcome Kudzu Killers, Homicide and Sweet Tea, to the Podmoth Network. Kudzu Killers is a true crime podcast featuring a couple of honest-to-goodness Southern gals discussing compelling tales of Southern-style homicide. Be sure to listen, subscribe, and leave them a five-star review on iTunes. For a list of great podcasts, look no further than podmoth.network. And now, on with the show. It's understood by most Ripperologists that there are five canonical victims of Jack the Ripper. Of course, there have been some dozen or so murders attributed to the Ripper, but the following five have been attributed to Jack the Ripper exclusively, while the others are believed to have met their demise by someone else's hand. The canonical five are Mary Ann Nichols, found August 31st, Annie Chapman, found September 8th, Elizabeth Stride, found September 30th, Catherine Eddowes, found September 30th, and Mary Jane Kelly, found November 9th. All but one of the Ripper's victims were killed on the street, and each victim's throat was cut. Each of the bodies were mutilated, illustrating some knowledge of human anatomy. Now, before we go any further, I want to make sure that you know that this story is not for the faint of heart. Listener discretion is advised. So let's look at each of the canonical victims individually. Mary Ann Nichols, also known as Polly Nichols, was born on the 26th of August, 1845, to Edward Walker and Carolyn Webb. 
Edward was a locksmith, and Carolyn a laundress. There isn't much information regarding her early life, aside from having been christened in 1851. At 18, Mary Ann married William Nichols, a printer's machinist. The couple had five children and lived with Mary Ann's father at 131 Trafalgar Street. In September of 1880, the Nichols moved into their own home, located at 6D Block Peabody Buildings, Stamford Street, Blackfriars Road. Their rent was five shillings a week. Shortly after getting settled, William left the home, taking four of the children with him. Mary's father accused William of infidelity, claiming he'd had an affair with the nurse that had delivered his last grandchild. William claimed that the issues within their marriage were caused by Mary's heavy drinking, and later said that Mary had left him and was employed in sex work. By 1881, Mary lived at Lambeth Workhouse, located on Prince's Road in 1726. The workhouse was built to house 820 inmates that were divided by sex, and Mary was employed as a charwoman, someone who goes into people's homes once or twice a week to clean. By May of that year, she'd left, but returned in April of 1882. William was legally required to support his wife and initially paid her an allowance of five shillings a week, but he stopped sending the payments when he found out that she'd turned to sex work. According to parish authorities, he didn't have to pay as long as Mary was engaged in illicit activities. The majority of Mary's remaining years were spent in and out of the work and boarding houses. She lived off her income as a sex worker and charitable handouts. For a time, Mary had a relationship with Thomas Drew, a widower with three children, but the affair was short-lived. She spent the majority of her earnings on alcohol and often slept in Trafalgar Square. She was forced to return to the workhouse after the events of Bloody Sunday. She remained there for less than two weeks. In 1888, Mrs. Felder found Mary a job as a domestic servant to Mr. and Mrs. Cowdery in Wandsworth. Shortly after getting hired, Mary wrote her father to tell him of the new position. Quote, I just write to say you will be glad to know that I am settled in my new place and going on all right up to now. My people went out yesterday and have not returned, so I am in charge. It's a grand place inside, with trees and gardens back and front. All has been newly done up. They are teetotalers, and religious, so I ought to get on. They are very nice people, and I have not too much to do. I hope you are all right, and the boy has work. So goodbye for the present, from yours truly, Polly." End quote. Teetotalers were individuals who abstained from alcohol, meaning that this placement would help her to stay on the straight and narrow in terms of her drinking. Unfortunately, the employment didn't last, and she left the Cowdery's employ just three months later. She stole clothing worth three pounds ten shillings and left the premises. Her father, having tried to send Mary a return communication at the address, was informed of this. By the summer of that year, Mary resided at a common lodging house at 18 Thrall Street, Spitalfield, and shared a bed with an elderly woman named Nellie Holland. 
She found new accommodations at another lodging house at 56 Flower and Dean Streets, Whitechapel, on the 24th of August. This was the beginning of the end for Mary Ann Nichols. At 11 p.m. on August 30th, Mary was seen walking along Whitechapel Road. At the Frying Pan Public House on Brick Lane, Spitalfields, she likely had a few drinks and left around an hour and a half later. Nearing 2 a.m., the deputy lodging house keeper asked her for the four shillings required for her bed. When she told the man she didn't have the money, he ordered her off the premises. Mary, seemingly unaffected by this, told him that she'd soon be back. Mary had recently procured a new bonnet and replied, quote, I'll soon get my DOS money. See what a jolly bonnet I've got now, end quote. She then left the lodging house. Emily Holland saw Mary walking down Osborne Street alone at around 2.30 a.m. Holland told authorities that Mary appeared intoxicated and even slumped against the wall of a grocer's shop. Holland asked Mary to come with her to the Thrall Street lodging house, but Mary declined the offer, claiming that she'd already spent her DOS money three times over and needed to earn more. Holland said that Mary didn't seem concerned about earning the money that she needed, and so the two parted ways. Mary walked toward Whitechapel Road. This interaction occurred approximately one hour before her body was found. From Wikipedia, quote, At 3.40 a.m., a car man named Charles Allen Cross, birth name Lechmere, discovered what he initially believed to be a tarpaulin lying on the ground in front of a gated stable entrance in Bucks Row, renamed Deward Street in 1892, Whitechapel, as he walked to his place of employment in Broad Street. The location was approximately 150 yards from the London Hospital and 100 yards from Blackwall buildings. Upon inspecting the object, Cross discovered that the tarpaulin was actually the body of a woman. She lay on her back with her eyes open, her legs straight, her skirt raised above her knees, and her left hand touching the gate of the stable entrance. Another passing cart driver on his way to work, Robert Paul, approached the location and observed Cross standing in the road, staring at her body. Cross called him over, and both men walked towards the body, which they examined. Cross touched the woman's face, which was still warm, then her hands, which were cold. He expressed his opinion to Paul that the woman was dead, but Paul was uncertain and thought that she may be simply unconscious. The two pulled her skirt down to cover her lower body and went in search of a policeman. Upon encountering P.C. Jonas Misen at the corner of Hanbury Street and Baker's Row, Cross informed the constable of their discovery adding, quote, she looks to me to either be dead or drunk, but for my part, I believe she's dead, end quote. The two men then continued on their way to work, leaving Misen to inspect their discovery. Shortly before Misen reached Buck's Row, PC John Neal approached the street from the opposite direction on his beat, illuminating Nichols's body with his lantern. By flashing this lantern, Neil attracted the attention of PC John Thane as his beat passed the entrance to Buck's Row, shouting, quote, Here's a woman with her throat cut. Run at once for Dr. Llewellyn. End quote. 
Neil then inspected the crime scene to look for blood trails with his lantern. He saw none. He also examined the road, but saw no marks of wheels. P.C. Thane fetched surgeon Dr. Llewellyn, who lived in Bucks Row at 4 a.m. Llewellyn observed that two deep knife wounds had been inflicted to the woman's throat and quickly pronounced her life extinct, determining, though the fact her body and legs were still warm, that she had been dead for approximately 30 minutes. He then ordered P.C. Neal to remove the body to the old Montague Street mortuary upon a handcart that Misen had fetched, stating, quote, Move the woman to the mortuary. She is dead. I will make a further examination of her, end quote. As news of the murder spread, many individuals converged on the scene. Among them were three horse slaughterers from a neighboring knacker's yard in Winthrop Street named Harry Tompkins, James Mumford, and Charles Britton. Each had been informed of the murder by P.C. Thane as he walked past to fetch Dr. Llewellyn. All three were interrogated, with Tompkins and Britton admitting to having left their workplace at 12.20 a.m. for approximately 30 minutes, possibly for a drink at the nearby Roebuck public house. All three were eliminated as suspects. Police questioning of all tenants of Buck's Row, including residents of the property closest to where Nichols' body was discovered, revealed that although several residents had been awake in the early hours, none had seen or heard anything amiss. All police officers patrolling along or near Buck's Row in the early hours of the 31st of August also reported hearing and seeing nothing suspicious before the discovery of Nichols' body, end quote. Mary's body was brought to the old Montague Street mortuary at 5.20 a.m. Dr. Llewellyn discovered that her throat had been slit from left to right. Two wounds were present, one measuring eight inches, the other four inches. The cuts were so deep that they reached back to her vertebral column, or spine. Her face was bruised from, Dr. Llewellyn concluded, a fist or a pressure from a thumb, and her abdomen had been mutilated. The cuts to her abdomen had been inflicted with the same knife and were varied in length from six to eight inches. Llewellyn said he believed that the killer had some anatomical knowledge. No organs were taken. He speculated that the injuries would have taken four to five minutes to inflict and was surprised at the small amount of blood at the crime scene. He was able to determine, however, that the injuries to the abdomen were made post-mortem and that Mary had died quickly of the wounds inflicted on her throat. Mary Ann Nichols' body was identified by Emily Holland and her husband William. Upon seeing her remains, he said, quote, I forgive you, as you are, for what you have done to me, end quote. She had very little on her person, a comb, a piece of mirror, and the clothes on her back. Her petticoats were marked Lambeth Workhouse, PR. An official inquest into Mary's death was opened at the Working Lads Institute on Whitechapel Road on September 1st and was presided by Middlesex coroner Wayne Edwin Baxter. The British Daily newspaper, The Times, reported, quote, five of the teeth were missing and there was a slight laceration of the tongue. There was a bruise running along the lower part of the jaw and the right side of the face. 
that might have been caused by a blow from a fist or a pressure from a thumb. There was a circular bruise on the left side of the face, which also may have been inflicted by pressure of the fingers. On the left side of the neck, about one inch below the jaw, there was an incision about four inches in length and ran from a point immediately below the ear. On the same side, but an inch below, and commencing about one inch in front of it, was a circular incision, which terminated at about three inches below the right jaw. That incision completely severed all the tissues down to the vertebrae. The large vessels of the neck on both sides were severed. The incision was about eight inches in length. The cuts must have been caused by a long bladed knife, moderately sharp and used with great violence. No blood was found on the breast, either of the body or the clothes. There were no injuries about the body until just about the lower part of the abdomen. Two or three inches from the left side was a wound running in a jagged manner. The wound was a very deep one and the tissues were cut through. There were several incisions running across the abdomen. There were three or four similar cuts running downward on the right side, all of which had been caused by a knife, which had been used violently and downward. The injuries were from left to right and might have been done by a left-handed person. All of the injuries have been caused by the same instrument." End quote. There was speculation that the killer was left-handed, but there was no real proof of this. The belief that Jack the Ripper worked with his left hand endures today. By the time Mary's inquest concluded on September 24th, the Ripper had taken another victim, Annie Chapman. The similarities in the two cases caused them to be linked immediately. Mary Ann Nichols is buried in the City of London Cemetery on the edge of the Memorial Garden. In 1996, a plaque was placed to replace the public grave marker that was originally installed. I'm keen on protein powders that give me a little extra boost. There are mornings when I just can't get up and eat a huge breakfast, so I make a protein shake instead, and the powders I got from Unico Nutrition hit the spot. There are so many delicious flavors. Vanilla ice cream milkshake, ooey gooey frosted cinnamon roll, spoonful of peanut butter with chocolate, Aunt Judy's banana cream pie, molten chocolate lava shake, cookies and cream dream, and candy shop caramel squares. They even have a birthday cake cupcake with rainbow sprinkles. Unico protein powder for women and men is the perfect guilt-free indulgence. Use the low-carb protein shakes for faster recovery after workouts, healthier snacking, or even as a meal replacement. The powder itself is so fine that it blends seamlessly into milkshakes and mixes for baked goods. And Unico has a bunch of recipes on their website for delicious donuts and keto-friendly cinnamon rolls, to name a few. Unico's everyday wellness supplements help replenish essential nutrients and help you live your best life. Trim down and tone up with Unico's best-in-class supplements for weight loss, carefully formulated with five patented all-natural ingredients to help you achieve your healthiest physique. Right now, listeners of the Identity Podcast can save $20 on their purchase at uniconutrition.com. Just head on over to their website and use code Identity at checkout. That's O-D-D-E-N-T-I-T-Y. 
Say goodbye to chalky, tasteless protein powders and supplements that fall flat, and say hello to Unico Nutrition. It's like a bunch of unicorns are having a rave in your mouth. Seriously. Annie Chapman was born in Paddington in September of 1840 as Eliza Ann Smith, and was the eldest of five children. George Smith, Annie's father, was a soldier who enlisted in the 2nd Regiment of Lifeguards in 1834. Her mother's name was Ruth Chapman. Her parents were unmarried when Annie was born, but they did get married in 1842. Annie's brother, Fountaine, said that Annie had taken her first drink at quite a young age and developed a taste for alcohol. Both Fountaine and two of his sisters had begged Annie to give up drinking on multiple occasions, but to no avail. In 1861, census records show that all members of the Smith family relocated to Kluwer, but Annie stayed behind. She likely has a job as a domestic servant and was unable to leave. Annie was intelligent and sociable, but her drinking was out of control. She was five feet high with blue eyes and dark brown hair, which earned her the nickname Dark Annie. In 1869, Annie would marry her maternal relative, John James Chapman, and the pair had three children together. Their son John was born with disabilities that required him to be institutionalized, and the Chapman's youngest daughter, Emily Ruth, died of meningitis at the age of two, increasing both Annie and James's alcohol dependency. Annie and her husband would separate in 1884, John Chapman retaining custody of their remaining daughter, Annie Georgina. John states that the reason for their separation was his wife's drunken and immoral ways, but did pay Annie 10 shillings a week in allowance. Annie eventually took up with a man who made sieves for a living, becoming known by some as Annie Sivy or Siffy. It's said that after the death of her husband and the loss of her allowance, Annie seemingly lost the will to live. John would die of cirrhosis and edema, leading these payments to cease. The sieve maker left her once the flow of money from her husband ran dry, and she was left to fend for herself. In May or June of 1888, Annie resided at Crossingham's Lodging House at 35 Dorset Street. A 47-year-old bricklayer named Edward Stanley would sometimes spend the night and pay for the bed, but for the most part, Annie made money selling flowers, Antimer Cesars, doilies for the backs of arms and chairs, and casual sex work. Eight days prior to her body being found, Annie had fought with a lodging house resident named Eliza Cooper. The two were competing for the affections of a local peddler, and Annie had borrowed soap from Eliza that had not been returned. Annie supposedly threw a halfpenny on the kitchen table and told her to go buy a halfpenny's worth of soap, but the argument spilled over to the Britannia public house later in the evening, Eliza striking Annie in the face and chest, resulting in a black eye and bruising. The lodging house deputy would see Annie drinking with another lodger, Frederick Stevens, at around 12.30 a.m. She left the premises shortly after and returned with a baked potato, eating and then leaving again. 
It was likely her intention to earn the remaining money that she needed for her bed for the evening as she was short. She headed off in the direction of Spitalfields Market. A woman by the name of Elizabeth Long, alias Durrell, testified that she'd seen Annie speaking with a man at 5.30 a.m. He was slightly taller than her and seemed around 40 years of age, though she only said that she saw him from the back. He wore a brown felt hat with a low crown and a dark coat. Long claimed that the man looked foreign. The man asked Annie, will you? And Annie replied that she would. Long was likely the last person to see Annie alive. Before 5 a.m. on September 8th, John Richardson entered the backyard of 29 Hanbury Street to trim a piece of leather from his boot. He sat on the back steps and completed the task, but he saw nothing out of the ordinary. At 5.15 a.m., Albert Kadash entered the yard at 27 Hanbury to use the lavatory. He told police that he'd heard a woman pleading and the sound of something or someone falling against the fence between 27 and 29 Hanbury, but he didn't investigate. Annie's body was finally found by John Davis at 6 a.m. The body was lying close to the back doorway, on the ground with the head only six inches from the bottommost stair. Davis alerted three other men to his find, who ran off in search of a policeman. Divisional Inspector Joseph Loomis Chandler followed the men back to Annie's body and then got in contact with other officers and the police surgeon, Dr. George Baxter Phillips. Phillips arrived at around 6.30 a.m. and quickly noticed a link between Annie's murder and the killing of Mary Nichols. Two deep slashes to the throat and a mutilated abdomen were beginning to become the Ripper's signature. Phillips also determined the knife used was the same and noticed several areas of blood spatter on the wall of the house. Some were 18 inches above the ground. Pills prescribed for Annie for a lung condition were discovered on her body, as well as a section of torn envelope, a piece of coarse muslin, and a comb. A leather apron soaking in a dish of water located next to the tap was also found. Two farthings were found in the yard, but there's no reference to these coins in police record. There was an inquest into Annie's murder on the 10th of September, presided by the Middlesex coroner Baxter. There was testimony from four witnesses, including that of John Davies, who laid out his discovery of her body. Davies explained that the yard was never locked, and access by any person at any time was easy enough. Amelia Palmer testified that she'd known Annie for several years and often wrote letters for her. She also explained that Annie had a fondness for alcohol and had not a regular means of livelihood. Each Friday, Annie would travel to Stratford to sell anything that she had in order to have money for lodging and rum. The lodging house deputy testified that the only trouble he'd had with Annie was the argument between her and Eliza Cooper. Otherwise, she was a respectable tenant and was sober for the bulk of the week, only drinking to excess on Saturday nights. On the 13th of September, at the medical inquest, Dr. George Baxter Phillips described his observations of Annie's remains. Quote, The left arm was placed across the left breast. The legs were drawn up, 
the feet resting on the ground, and the knees were turned outwards. The face was swollen and turned on the right side. The tongue was evidently much swollen. The front teeth were perfect as far as the first molar, top and bottom, and very fine teeth they were. The body was terribly mutilated. The stiffness of the limbs was not marked, but was evidently commencing. He noticed that the throat was dissevered deeply, that the incision through the skin was jagged and reached right around the neck. On the wooden paling between the yard in question and the next, smears of blood corresponding to where the head of the deceased lay were to be seen. These were about 14 inches from the ground and immediately above the part where the blood from the neck lay. The instrument used at the throat and abdomen was the same. It must have been a very sharp knife with a thin narrow blade and must have been at least six to eight inches in length, probably longer. He should say that the injuries could not have been inflicted by a bayonet or a sword bayonet. They could have been done by such an instrument as a medical man used for post-mortem purposes, but the ordinary surgical cases might not contain such an instrument. Those used by slaughtermen, well ground down, might have caused them. He thought the knives used by those in the leather trade would not be long enough in the blade. There were indications of anatomical knowledge. He should say that the deceased had been dead at least two hours, and probably more, when he first saw her, but it was right to mention that it was a fairly cool morning, and the body would have been more apt to cool rapidly from its having lost a great quantity of blood. There was no evidence of a struggle having taken place. He was positive the deceased entered the yard alive. A handkerchief was around the throat of the deceased when he saw it early in the morning. He should say it was not tied on after the throat was cut. End quote. Annie had been disemboweled, and her throat was cut deeply to the point of the knife leaving striations on her spine. The flesh from her stomach was placed on her left shoulder, and another section of flesh along with her small intestines were removed and placed over her right shoulder. Part of her uterus and bladder had been removed and were missing. Phillips believed that she'd been asphyxiated due to her swollen and protruding tongue, and also determined that she was killed where she was found as there was no blood trail. Again, Phillips would hang his hat on the idea that Jack had anatomical knowledge, though this was dismissed by many at the time. He estimated that her time of death was before or at 4.30 a.m., though measuring body temperature in the Victorian era was difficult, and he explained that the body temperature could have cooled more quickly. The inquest lasted five days, the jury returning a verdict of willful murder against an unknown assailant. There were many arrests for Annie's murder, but none of the suspects could be placed at the crime scene. A man named John Pizer, a Polish Jew who made footwear and was known by the name Leather Apron, relating to the apron found at the crime scene, but despite a past that was violent against several sex workers, he was released when his alibi for the nights of Mary and Annie's murders checked out. Annie was laid to rest on September 14th in a communal grave within Manor Park Cemetery, Forest Gate, East London. Only relatives attended the service. Today, her actual burial place is unknown, but a plaque was placed by authorities in 2008 marking the general vicinity. 
On September 27, 1888, the Central News Agency received the Dear Boss letter, first dismissed as a prank, but later taken seriously by investigators. It reads, Dear Boss, I keep on hearing the police have caught me, but they won't fix me just yet. I have laughed when they look so clever and talk about being on the right track. That joke about leather apron gave me real fits. I am down on whores, and I shan't quit ripping them till I do get buckled. Grand work the last job was. I gave the lady no time to squeal. How can they catch me now? I love my work and want to start again. You'll soon hear of me with my funny little games. I saved some of the proper red stuff in a ginger beer bottle over the last job to write with, but it went thick like glue and I can't use it. Red ink is fit enough, I hope. Ha ha. The next job I do, I shall clip the lady's ears off and send to the police officers just for jolly, wouldn't you? Keep this letter back till I do a bit more work, then give it out straight. My knife's so nice and sharp, I want to get to work right away if I get a chance. Good luck. Yours truly, Jack the Ripper. Don't mind me giving the trade name. P.S. Wasn't good enough to post this before I got all the red ink off my hands. Curse it, no luck yet. They say I'm a doctor now. Ha ha. Elizabeth Stride was the Ripper's third victim although some ripperologists believe that the lack of mutilation to her corpse proves otherwise. Her throat was slashed in a similar fashion, which leads many to believe that Jack was interrupted. Elizabeth was born Elizabeth Gustaf's daughter on November 27, 1843, in Torslandi, west of Gothenburg, Sweden. She was raised in the Lutheran faith on a farm with three other siblings. At 16, she relocated to Gothenburg in hopes of finding work and did find employ as a domestic worker for a couple named Olafsson. She would leave that position in favor of another similar job in February of 1864. Unlike some of the other Ripper victims, Stride turned to sex work early in life. Police records dating back to 1865 confirmed this. In 1866, she moved to London. Her mother had passed away two years prior, and it's likely she used the money that she received after her death to afford the trip. She told her friends two different stories. Either she was going to work for a gentleman who lived in Hyde Park, or she was going to live with relatives. In London, Elizabeth learned to speak English and Yiddish, and is known to have briefly dated a policeman in the late 1860s. My old deodorant just wasn't cutting it anymore. I was constantly itchy and frequently had rashes under my arms. Then I switched to Lumi. In case you were wondering, everything they say in the cute advertisements with the French lady that you've seen are true. Lumi is a natural deodorant for underarms and private parts that's clinically proven to last up to 48 hours. I can now go almost 72 hours without reapplication. I also use Lumi on my feet, and they have a line of soap, lotion, and wipes to satisfy all of your stink suppression needs. Lumi was invented by an OBGYN, is safe for any external use, and is made without aluminum, baking soda, or fragrance oils, 
so it's safe for even the most sensitive skin. But Lumi still smells pleasant. I'm partial to the juniper berry and clean tangerine myself, but there's also jasmine rose, silver spruce, lavender sage, coconut crush, and unscented. Right now, Lumi is offering first-class shipping on USPS orders over $20 or more, and there's always a sensational sale on their site. You see what I did there? And as a bonus, if you buy using my link, you'll be automatically entered to win a free Lumi product every week. So head on over to the Lumi website via the link in the show notes and take Lumi out for a spin. Lumi, for everyone's pits and stinky bits. In 1869, she married John Thomas Stride, a ship's carpenter who was 22 years her senior. They had no children. The couple separated in March of 1877. In December of 1881, suffering from bronchitis, she was admitted to the workhouse infirmary at Whitechapel and was finally discharged in January of 1882. It was at this point that she took up residence in one of the lodging houses on Flower and Dean Streets. In the years following, Elizabeth's husband died of tuberculosis at the Poplar and Stepney Sick Asylum, and she told several people that her husband and two of her nine children had died in the 1878 sinking of the Princess Alice on the River Thames. She claimed she had only survived because she'd held on to the mast. It was this event that caused the injury to her palate when another survivor kicked her in the face. She explained that this caused her stutter. Elizabeth, in addition to sex work, also earned income for housekeeping and sewing and flip-flopped between living with a dock worker named Michael Kidney and the common lodgings. She was arrested several times for drunken disorderly conduct, and although an acquaintance described her temperament as mild, it's apparent from one of the police reports that alcohol made Elizabeth lose her faculties completely. Her friends called her Long Liz, likely in reference to her long features or possibly her height. It could have also been that her last name was Stride, referring to a long step. On the day Elizabeth was murdered, September 30th, 1888, P.D. William Smith saw her standing with a man wearing a hard felt hat next to the International Working Men's Educational Club at 40 Burner Street in Whitechapel. In his hands was a package roughly 18 inches in length. Smith had no reason to be suspicious, so he continued on his beat. Between 12.35 a.m. and 12.45 a.m., a man named James Brown saw who he believed to be Elizabeth standing at the corner of Burner Street, engaged in conversation with a man of average height wearing a long black coat. Brown heard Elizabeth tell him, not tonight, some other night. Her body was discovered at 1 a.m. by Louis Dimeschutz, a steward at the educational club in the adjacent Duffield's yard. He'd driven his carriage into the yard, but his horse had shied away and would not go straight, shying to the left. Dimeschutz saw what he believed to be a bundle on the ground, and he prodded it with his whip handle. It was only when he lit a match that he discovered what the bundle actually was. Dimeschutz raced back to the club to tell others what he'd seen, then went to find a policeman. The wound at Elizabeth's neck was still bleeding, and though her hands were cool to the touch, 
the rest of her body retained some warmth. Dimeshoot's arrival at the scene must have scared off the killer who left his work incomplete and fled into the darkness. Phillips notes in official post-mortem documents state, quote, The body was lying on the near side with the face turned toward the wall, the head up the yard and the feet towards the street. The left arm was extended and there was a packet of cashews in the left hand. The right arm was over the belly, the back of the hand and wrist had on it clotted blood. The legs were drawn up with feet close to the wall. The body and face were warm and the hand cold. The legs were quite warm. The deceased had a silk handkerchief around her neck and it appeared to be slightly torn. I have since ascertained it was cut. This corresponded to the right angle of the jaw. The throat was deeply gashed, and there was an abrasion of the skin about one and a quarter inches in diameter, apparently stained with blood under her right brow. At 3 p.m. on Monday, at St. George's Mortuary, Dr. Blackwell and I made a post-mortem examination. Rigor mortis was still thoroughly marked. There was mud on the left side of the face, and it was matted on the head. The body was fairly nourished. Over both shoulders, especially the right, and under the collarbone and in front of the chest, there was a bluish discoloration, which I have watched and have seen on two occasions since. There was a clear-cut incision on the neck. It was six inches in length and commenced two and a half inches in a straight line below the angle of the jaw, three-quarters of an inch over an undivided muscle, and then becoming deeper, dividing the sheath. The cut was very clean and deviated a little downwards. The arteries and other vessels contained in the sheath were all cut through. The cut through the tissues on the right side was more superficial and tailed off to about two inches below the right angle of the jaw. The deep vessels on that side were uninjured. From this it was evident that the hemorrhage was caused through the partial severance of the left carotid artery and a small bladed knife could have been used. Decomposition had commenced in the skin. Dark brown spots were on the anterior surface of the left chin. There was a deformity in the bones of the right leg, which was not straight, but bowed forwards. There was no recent external injury, save to the neck. The body being washed more thoroughly, I could see some healing sores. The lobe of the left ear was torn, as if from the removal or wearing through of an earring, but was thoroughly healed. On removing the scalp, there was no sign of bruising or extravasation of blood. The heart was small and the left ventricle firmly contracted, the right slightly so. There was no clot in the pulmonary artery, but the right ventricle was full of dark clot. The left was firmly contracted as to be absolutely empty. The stomach was large and the mucous membrane only congested. It contained partly digested food apparently consisting of cheese, potato, and a farinaceous powder, flour, or milled grain. All the teeth on the lower left jaw were absent, end quote. Dr. Blackwell, who had arrived at the scene 10 minutes before Dr. Phillips, believed that Elizabeth had been pulled backwards by her neckerchief before cutting her throat, while bruising on her chest suggested that she'd been pinned to the ground. Witnesses were questioned, both visitors to the club and residents, but there were no leads. 
One resident, Fanny Mortimer, had seen a man run past with a shiny black bag and reported this widely to newspapers, but it turned out to be one of the club's members, Leon Goldstein, who was clear of any wrongdoing. Chief Inspector Swanson distributed 80,000 leaflets around Whitechapel, asking the public to come forward with any information. Some 2,000 lodgers were investigated in the killing, but all were cleared. Elizabeth's on-again, off-again love interest, Michael Kidney, was also cleared of wrongdoing. He had an alibi for the night she was killed. The inquest into Elizabeth's murder was again presided over by Baxter. Two patrons at the educational club who were present the night that Elizabeth was murdered, including Louis Dimeschutz, stated that 25 to 30 people had been at the club at the time that the body was discovered, but they heard no commotion outside, even though all the windows were open. Elizabeth and her assailant would have heard the music and dancing inside. Blackwell testified that Elizabeth's carotid artery was only partially severed, meaning that her death was comparatively slow and that she would have been unable to cry out. Phillips stated that cause of death was loss of blood from the left carotid and division of the windpipe. He also said that the killer knelt on her right side as he cut her throat. At the end of day five of the inquest, Elizabeth's identity had been confirmed and all testimony of witnesses had been entered. The death was ruled a homicide. Another famous correspondence, the From Hell letter, was received by the Central News Office on October 1st. On the 16th of October, a parcel containing half a preserved human kidney and a note referred to as a Saucy Jack postcard were received by George Lusk, chairman of the Whitechapel Vigilance Committee. From Hell, Mr. Lusk, Sir, I send you half the kidney I took from one woman, preserved it for you, other piece I fried and ate, it was very nice. I may send you the bloody knife that took it out if you only wait a while longer. Signed, Catch Me When You Can, Mr. Lusk. The Saucy Jackie postcard read, I was not codding, dear old boss, when I gave you the tip. You'll hear about Saucy Jackie's work tomorrow. Double event this time, number one squealed a bit, couldn't finish straight off. Had not time to get ears off for police. Thanks for keeping last letter back till I got to work again. Jack the Ripper. The handwriting from the From Hell letter and the Saucy Jackie postcard are very different and not believed to have been sent by the same individual. A journalist, Fred Best of The Star, claimed that he and a colleague had written all the letters signed Jack the Ripper to keep business alive. Authorities ultimately received hundreds of communications supposedly from the serial murderer, but most were obvious hoaxes. There's still a debate as to whether any of the letters from Jack are authentic. A forensic linguist who read through all of the written communications determined that at least two of the letters were written by the same person, but that the person was probably not Jack the Ripper. Elizabeth Stride was interred on October 6, 1888, in the East London Cemetery. Her headstone is simple and is inscribed with her name and birth and death dates. Next week, we'll explore the final two canonical Ripper victims and the top five names from the list of suspects. 
We'll also take a look at current and recent suspicion of who the Ripper might have been. That's it for this week, dear listeners. Tune again next week for more tales of the creepy, weird, and paranormal. Until next time, stay spooky. The Identity Podcast is brought to you on a weekly basis by host Janine Mercer. The podcast is written, produced, and edited by Janine Mercer, unless otherwise stated, and the music is provided by GarageBand. Find The Odd Pod on Twitter and Instagram at IdentityPod and Facebook as The Identity Podcast. You're welcome to email suggestions for future episodes to theidentitypodcast at gmail.com. And if you'd like a transcript of this episode, one will be available at theidentitypodcast.wordpress.com. Please take a moment to leave a five-star review on iTunes. And if you haven't already, please make sure to mash that subscribe button to be sure you're in the know when a new episode drops. Sincerest thanks to all that have promoted the Identity Podcast to their family, friends, and coworkers. Every little bit helps.